0: Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. We all want to bear fruit. It's written into the very core of what it means to be human, desiring to live a fruitful life. Now, we may disagree on what fruitfulness looks like, but every single human being desires to have purpose and fruitfulness, to know that our life has meaning and importance and a purpose. We all want to bear fruit. You know, it's interesting how our service begins every week because it really starts on the matter of fruit bearing. It defines again for us what fruit bearing looks like according to Scripture. We have the summary of the law every time we gather. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and you shall love your neighbor As yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what a fruit bearing life looks like to love God wholly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what is our liturgical response each and every week? Immediately following this picture of fruit bearing, we say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us, because we know how far we fall from fruit bearing. We know we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We know we have not loved God with our heart. Lord, have mercy. But here's the thing this morning as we conclude our I Am series, walking through the seven I Am statements in John's Gospel, we ask for mercy. Oh, Lord, I know there is fruit bearing, and I see it in a failed and incomplete way in my life. Lord, have mercy. And guess what? There is mercy here. For Jesus says to us here in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who will bear much fruit. See, the gospel, the good news this morning is not will you bear good fruit. The good news is you will bear good fruit. It's a promise. But Jesus in this one verse and in this powerful passage from John 15 is actually unpacking for us how fruit bearing will work in our imperfect lives. Because what Jesus is saying, the good news here is that you will bear good fruit as you live in Jesus, as you live with Jesus. Live in me, abide in me, and you will bear good fruit, he says. But it's not just that we live with Jesus and bear good fruit, but we live with him and in doing so are becoming more and more like him you know the alliteration is going to happen here right so sometimes we could play a guessing game here right we live with Jesus and in doing so we become more and more like him but the critical thing is we must live with him seeking to become like him letting him be the Lord he's in the driver's seat not you and me See, first, we recognize that we will bear fruit as we live with Jesus, right? What does he say? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who will bear much fruit. The first thing we need to be confronted with in this text is the fact that our fruit bearing is completely dependent upon our connection with Jesus, And I know we may say, oh, of course, that's basic. But do we live like that? Do we actually recognize that without Jesus as our core, as our root, we cannot bear fruit? And the reason we cannot bear fruit, let's be clear, is that Jesus has demonstrated in all of these I am statements in John how he alone, he uniquely is the answer to all the desires of the world, right? He is in a world that is full of Hunger for truth and for righteousness. I am the bread of life. He is in a world that cannot figure out truth from untruth, the light of the world. In a world that's so quickly to get lost and follow after false leaders and false gurus, he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the door to the sheep. To a world that is constantly in the face of death, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. To a world that is again and again, wondering which way should I really go? I am the way and the truth and the life. And then today I am the true vine and my father, the vine dresser. See what Jesus is declaring audaciously is that he is the answer to every problem, every desire that the world is facing. I uniquely am the one who will fulfill these needs, he's saying. And therefore, if Jesus alone can give the world what it needs, if we're going to be any of assistance in this world, we better be linked to him. Without him, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. True. We can't offer the world these things, but he can. With him, we can. With him, we can bear fruit. See, the challenge we face again and again is that Jesus is calling us to abide in him. Abide, he says, 11 times in the text. Abide, it means live with, it means make your home there, it means dwell, it means continue. If you're going to have fruit in your life, if you're gonna bear fruit, you've got to live with me, Jesus says. You notice at the beginning of John's gospel, when the two first disciples come across and they find Jesus, there's an interesting interaction. They say to him in John 1:38, 39, they say, Lord, Master, where are you abiding? Where are you staying? And he says, Come and you will see. And so the text is, and they went and they saw where he abode, and they abode with him. They saw where he lived. And they stayed with him. They moved in with Jesus. They said, I'm going to live my life there. And in doing so, they began to bear fruit. See, it's interesting when we think about living with Jesus, about not just visiting, but actually living there. I think of live streaming in the context of contemporary church services. I mean, live streaming, as we know... It's something that every church now does because of the pandemic. And you know, as a result, overnight, every preacher became a televangelist. And it's had wonderful effects in the one sense. I mean, wonderful broad reach. I mean, more people all around the world can watch and engage. Um, and it's had effect that people who are really truly shut in and cannot come due to illness or other incapacity can actually enter in fully to our services. It's wonderful. But we got to balance that with the challenge of the fact that live streaming has made church so available digitally that for many, church is becoming more of a vacation home than a home. Church is becoming a place that I visit when it's convenient, rather than making this the place where I abide always. More and more, we find ourselves disconnected, not centering our entire life around Jesus and around his bride. He is here in the midst of his people. Do we center our lives here? Do we live here? I was talking to someone this week who described the experience of a woman in our parish who had, during COVID, got into a Zoom small group. And that's great. We had new groups open up on Zoom so people could Zoom together. Well, many of these Zoom groups stayed together. And that's great if you're in one. I'm not getting down on Zoom groups. Just hear her own testimony. For three years, she was in a Zoom group. And then just now, this last couple of weeks, has moved into an actual in-person group, like showing up with real people in the room. And do you know what her experience was? She said, spending one day, one group session with actual live people in the room, I felt more connected and more built up and supported than three years of Zoom group. And that's not downplaying her Zoom group. It's just saying, look at the value of what it is when you actually live here. You know, people have asked us in Canada, we were visiting not long ago, they asked us, you know, why is it that you guys have settled so well into Texas? Like, you just seem like you've really shed so much of your Canadian. I mean, I know to you guys, I seem like a weird foreigner still every Sunday, but, but to my Canadian brethren, they're like, you're so Texan, you even sound Texan. And I say, really? And, and, and I say, y'all don't sound Texan, but they, um, they you know, People have asked, how did that happen? I said, I think honestly, by the grace of God, when Monica and I and the girls moved down here almost eight years ago, we just made a decision to fully buy in to the community and the context that the Lord had placed us in. We just kind of embraced everything. We said, all right, this is where we're going to live. So we just, we got into the food here and, I mean, quickly gained weight on brisket and Tex-Mex. And we we, we got into the culture with boots and, and all of the other, you know, parts of Texas culture. And we loved the people. And we even, you know, chose the local, you know, sports team. Like, we became Dallas Stars fans immediately and those other Dallas teams, which I won't speak of. And we... You know, we just, we bought in and actually had friends. We built into friendships because we made a decision to make this our home. This is our home. Not halfway our home, but truly our home. And the question for each of us is when Jesus invites us to abide in him, do we respond to that invitation? Or is he still kind of our vacation home? Or have we centered more and more our whole life around him? Jesus says, you will bear fruit as you abide in me. We bear fruit as we live with Jesus. But as we live with him, here's what happens. We become like him. We we actually get changed through the living arrangements. Because we're living with him, he transforms who we are. Uh, Notice in verse 2, Jesus says, every branch... In me that does not bear fruit, my Father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will bear more fruit. It's actually kind of two types of pruning. It's a repentant pruning, stuff that has to go away. And there's a regenerative pruning that will create more life. So first there's the repentant pruning. We have to acknowledge this as we move in with Jesus, as we live our lives with Jesus centered on him there is going to be dead dead foliage in our lives that needs to get cut away. It's just gonna happen. I was out gardening yesterday. I'm not very good at gardening. I don't do it very often. I'm repenting of gardening right now already. And, and, but as I was out there, I noticed this sense of tube pruning because there's, there's some parts of little bushes where you look at it and think, is there any life there? And you sort of wiggle the, the branch. You go, there, there's no life there at all. In fact, if I wiggle it just a little bit, Snap! It just snaps right off. It's dry, it's dead, there's no fruit. Some kind of disease or has broken through and it's disconnected now from the life of the root. And so it's dead and that needs to be broken away. It needs to be taken away. And so it is with the sinfulness and the brokenness in our lives. There is stuff in us that must be put away. As Colossians 3 says, we are to put off those things that are earthly within us. And as we come to the Lord, and if you don't think there's anything earthly, and you just ask, trust me, he'll tell you. I mean, the great mercy of God is that he doesn't tell us everything that's wrong in us at once. If we said, Lord, show me everything, I'm pretty sure we all would be sort of ash, you know, on the ground because of like all the sin and brokenness. In mercy and grace, he shows us what we're to look at now. And he reveals to us our brokenness. As Psalm 139 says, show me, O God, if there's any wicked way in me. And he does. And what's the call then? To feel terrible about ourselves? No, the call is to repent, to turn from it. I love how C.S. Lewis says that we learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other, that we need not despair even of our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. We're neither to castigate ourselves nor congratulate ourselves but rather when we see sin in our lives to admit it before God. And you hear those words you know, 1 John chapter 1 whoever says they have no sin deceives themselves and the truth is not in them but if they confess their sins God is faithful and just and will forgive them their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. This is the promise of God. But then there's also the regenerative pruning. Right? You think of James chapter 1 where James writes, you know, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I remember a number of years ago, when near the time we moved here, uh, with our girls, I was sitting in their bedroom doing a little evening devotional with them, and we were looking at James, and that verse came up, and I said, oh, trials, you know, trials of various kinds. I said, girls, you know, are you facing any trials? And They looked and said, no, Daddy. And I I said, well, you know, new schools? You know, there's got to be some trials in your life. And they looked at me, no. And I I said, well, what about, you know, new friendships and moving out of Canada and trials, trials, trials. They finally looked at me and said, Daddy, we're okay, but do you have some trials you want to talk about? (laughs) But see, this is the regenerative pruning. We recognize in our lives that Anytime we've seen significant growth in our lives, it's because there's actually been some regenerative pruning. There's been challenge. There's been transformation that comes and it hurts. I mean, that, that wonderful quote from Michelangelo, speaking of the, the stone blocks, is every block of stone has a statue inside it and it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. And then he says, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. And this is what God is doing in us. Carving to set us free. And carving and pruning hurts. But it has its effect. Fruit bearing. Transformation. More and more life. More and more fruit. More and more like Jesus. You know, this week it was my joy to uh, reach out to our Foley. He was in Cairo. And I reached out to Archbishop Foley and said, I have a request to make, uh, because I can't make these decisions, I can only request them. I said, Archbishop Foley, I'm requesting, I was doing this by text, I'm requesting that you would make Father Jonathan Bales a canon. I'd like him to be canon for cathedral education because I look at the work he's doing and the fruit he's bearing and I just think this is right. And, and a canon, by the way, we have canons in the church. I'm a canon. John Beatty's a canon. Uh, Tony Brown's a canon. Mark Snow's a canon. They're meant to be pictures of these sort of examples living into the particular ministries they have. And, and, and I said, so let's make Jonathan a canon. And I got this like thumbs up emoji. And, and I... I had to write back and say, "Your Grace, uh, does the thumbs up mean you'd like to talk about it, or does the thumbs up mean proceed?" And he wrote back and said, "Proceed. It's a great idea." So I can say this morning that Father Jonathan is now the Reverend Canon Doctor Jonathan Bales. Now, why did I ask Archbishop Foley to make him a canon? Because he's brilliant? I mean, he is, but there's lots of brilliance out there. I asked Archbishop Foley to make him a canon because I see him bearing fruit. Right? We see the work that he's doing, and it's bearing fruit. And that's the point. The point of our living is that we will bear fruit as we live with Jesus, and in doing so, we become more and more like Him. This is the goal of the whole of Christian life. But finally, He's gotta be Lord. To have this happen, we have to let Him be the Lord. I mean, Jesus says in verse 16, You did not choose me. But I chose you, and I appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will abide. Jesus is the one who's made this decision. See, it's important we recognize Jesus' lordship in our fruit bearing, both that he is Lord in the work of this fruit bearing and in the will. It's his work as Lord and his will as Lord. I'll show you what I mean. It's his work as Lord in the sense that we are not the ones making this happen. You know, I've gotta always give the caveat. We talk a lot about discipleship. We talk a lot about becoming more and more like Christ, which is the call and the inheritance in our lives. But let's be very careful we don't accidentally turn this into another task or another sort of task list. Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like I gotta be more like Jesus today. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta try harder. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about your Christ-likeness, your becoming and imitating the person of Jesus being some kind of new self-help, self-help program for you this week. Like last week I was trying to do keto and this week I'm trying to like be like Jesus. Like, it's like just make it happen. Don't eat those carbs. I mean, this is about surrender. That's the gospel. As John Stott famously made the comparison, I love his analogy. He said, it's like me sitting down and reading a bunch of Shakespeare and then imagining that I could somehow, because I've read a bunch of Shakespeare, write just like Shakespeare. He said, I can read Othello and King Lear and Hamlet a bunch of times, but if you put a pad of paper in front of me and a pen, I can't just suddenly then start writing like Shakespeare. He said, just because you observe and watch is not enough. He said, it would require the brilliance and genius of Shakespeare to actually be placed inside of me and then I could start writing like Shakespeare. And so he says of the Christian life, it's not about us struggling in vain to become more like Jesus, but about allowing him by the power of the Spirit to come and change us from the inside. Once again, we see that, we, that to have him as our example is not enough. We need him to be our Lord and Savior. See, the work of this transformation is his work as Lord, his work in our lives. As Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, in the flesh I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. It is his work doing this transformation. I'm living with Jesus. I'm seeking to become like him, but it's his work as Lord that makes that happen. And it's his will. His will as Lord. You did not choose me, but I chose you. All right, we need to remember that there's nothing attractive and beautiful about us that made Jesus choose us. In fact, when God speaks of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter seven, he says, do not think that I chose you to be my beloved people because you were the greatest and biggest of all the nations. He said, you were the fewest of people on the earth, but it's because I chose to set my love upon you. See, God has come to us, unworthy as we are, and set his love upon us. That's his will for us. His will, his desire, and let's be clear, he knows what it takes to make you and I more like him. He knew the cost of our Christ-likeness. He knew that if we were to be transformed more and more, it wouldn't be enough just to live with him and therefore seek to be like him, but that he as Lord would have to come and do the heavy lifting, do the work, make the will his own by dying on the cross and bearing everything wrong in you and I so that we could finally be set free, set free to live For him. You know, I told this story at summer camp. I've told it here before, sometime in the past. I've been here almost eight years. I'm gonna repeat a few stories. But when I was in first year university, I got cast in a quartet. Now, the quartet was a really advanced thing. Like, it was hard to get into. I mean, quartet, one, two, three, four, four four-part harmony. It means I was the tenor in the school. Now I was a freshman. They normally didn't put freshmen in. I know you're supposed to be really impressed. And I was in, but my problem was a character issue. So I was in the quartet, and I could perform well, just not really function as a good member of the team. Because part of the quartet's responsibility was not just to sing, but also to set up Bleachers, music stands, handout programs, and clean up afterwards and load the truck. Well, I decided that was a bit below me. And so I showed up for our first performance and just performed and then found a good excuse to leave. And I got called into the head of the Department of Music's office the next day. And I knew what I'd done. And I walked in and he said, Paul, you are arrogant. And I said, I know, I know. I quit. It's fine. I'll quit before you fire me. He goes, fire you? And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. You know, you're going to you're going to fire me from the quartet." He goes, "Paul, don't think for a minute that your arrogance was a surprise to me. I knew that when I cast you." <laughs> he said, "I knew who you were when I put you in the quartet. I've called you in today because I've already made the choice that you're in, and I'm committed to work this arrogance out of you and form you into a good quartet." member and I was speechless which you can imagine for me is rather difficult (laughs) Philippians 2 13 it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure do you hear that gospel this morning you and I want to bear fruit You want to live a fruit-bearing life. And I do too. And we fail at it again and again. Love God, love your neighbor. Lord, have mercy upon us. And here's the thing. Mercy sought, mercy found. It's here in the heart of the gospel. For Jesus says to you and I, broken, imperfect as we are, seeking to have purpose and fruit in our lives, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, he it is who will bear much fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will abide. This is the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.